Well, again, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as I mentioned earlier in the service, and if you hadn't noticed already, today is Trinity Sunday. So I hope that I have some kids who are keeping count. I don't know if anyone has a tally for me so far. You can call it out if so. Seven from one of our big kids. (laughs) Buzz. (laughs) Anyone else? All right, seven is the number to beat, but I'm going to ask at the end. But it's kind of strange that we have this thing called Trinity Sunday where we pay so much attention to the Trinity because the Trinity, as you might know, is not actually a word that shows up in Scripture. It's not really a concept that is explained in Scripture. There's no doctrine of the Trinity that we can just read from a passage in Scripture. So we do here in the Gospel, which Katie just read for us, Jesus telling his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he has those three persons, Father, Son, himself, Holy Spirit, as one name. But he doesn't unpack that for us at all. Now, the whole concept of the Trinity is something that is just the early Christians trying within the bounds of their very limited and frail human understanding and the limits of our human language, they're trying to just bear witness to the God who is, the God who has revealed himself to them in Scripture, in history, in the person of Jesus, and in now this spirit-empowered community that we call the church. And so they look at this God that they have encountered, and they try to put language to who he's revealed himself to be. And all this language and concept of the Trinity just bubbles up from that attempt. And we actually can see this happening in real time all through the pages of the New Testament. We get these early glimpses that there's this Trinitarian theology that's kind of in development, kind of proto-Trinitarian. Like in today's reading from 2 Corinthians, Paul closes it with a Trinitarian blessing. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. And we don't bat an eye when we hear that because it's so familiar to us. It's part of so many of our liturgies. But this was totally brand new territory for language, for thought, for theology, for worship. It was brand new. And you see that throughout the New Testament. And then you also see it happening in the community and the writings of the early church. So in these statements of belief that we have called the creeds, like the Nicene Creed that we normally recite on Sundays, or the very, very, very long Athanasian Creed, which we only recite on Trinity Sunday because of the very long part, we hear them grappling with what this Trinity is. And the Athanasian Creed is the most comprehensive attempt to say what that is. And it was written not just to name what the Trinity is, but also to try and say what the Trinity isn't, to try and refute some of these early heresies that were floating around the church and starting to take root, that these church fathers saw these are going somewhere bad. And my theology professor, because of course I took a three-course Uh, cycle of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But my theology professor used to say that the problem with all of those early heresies, Arianism and Docetism and, you know, all of them 
which we don't need to get into, but the problem with all of them is that in one way or another, they try to resolve away the tension that is inherent in who God has revealed himself to be. Good theology, what we sometimes call orthodoxy, is trying and able to preserve that tension, to hold together the mystery of the three-in-one God that gets revealed to us in Scripture. It's trying to keep that together. And you'll hear in the Athanasian Creed how urgent and important this felt to those early Christians, like life or death, really. The doctrine of the Trinity seemed really important. They knew that what we think about God matters, how we imagine God matters, how we capture our imagination of God in language matters, as frail and as limited as it is. If we are claiming to put our trust in God, if we are trying to follow Jesus, if we're trying to set our compass toward the kingdom of heaven, then it's worth all that wrestling, all that grappling at the limits of our understanding to try and set our compass to true north. So, all of that is just where the doctrine of the Trinity comes from. Now I have the joy of trying to explain what it is. And it is that for all eternity, God is Father, God is Son, and God is Spirit. And that Father, Son, and Spirit are not three gods. They are one God, one Trinitarian God. And for all eternity, God is a Father giving himself in love to his Son, the God who is love and is Father, that's how he has identified himself throughout all of Scripture, must have an object of his loving fatherhood, or these terms that he's used to reveal himself are meaningless. And so to use a very old word, God eternally begets the Son, the object of his love, the second person of this three-personed God who is yet himself fully God, God inside and outside himself, giving himself to himself in love, eternally begetting. And most Sundays we claim this mind-bending reality in the Nicene Creed, when we say the Son is begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Now, as an aside, we humans are made, not begotten. We are creatures not children. We were created with all biological life, but we were not begotten of God. To make this about myself for a moment, I begat my children. They received their life from the substance of my own life, but I made this sermon. The sermon might bear my mark, it might have my mannerisms, my particular ways of thinking and seeing the world and communicating, but my sermon is a made thing. It's not a begotten thing. It is not of the same substance of me. So God is eternally a father begetting his son in love. And God is eternally a son receiving the love of the father and returning that love back to the father. And God is eternally the Holy Spirit, which is what we call that union of love being exchanged between father and son. And what all of this means 
is that God is not a static thing. God is not a thing at all. God is a dynamic activity. God is this living relationship of three-person love. And that three-person love of God is always generative. It's always self-giving, always pouring out in creativity and life. This Trinitarian love is the engine that makes the whole world, as we heard in that long reading from Genesis. The created world, all matter, all of us, everything we see is God's sermon. It is a made thing that bears God's mark, humans most of all. So that is the Trinity. I'm sure we're all tracking. But the question is, So what? Like, why does it matter? And C.S. Lewis writes this. What does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take her place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. If we want to get warm, we must stand near the fire. If we want to get wet, we must get into the water. If we want joy, power, peace, eternal life, we must get close to or even into the thing that has them. So the question then is, how do we get into the thing that has them? And this is the whole promise of the Christian faith that by faith in Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and by his work on our behalf, we get in. We get warm by the fire of the Holy Spirit kindled in our heart. We get wet in the water of baptism that unites us to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By faith, we who are made and not begotten begin to share in the life of Christ that is begotten, not made. C.S. Lewis again says, Christ is the Son of God. If we share in his life, we shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, receive the Father's love as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us and love out through us. And this is what we see in today's Gospel text. We see Jesus loving out through the disciples, sending them to bring the whole world into the Trinitarian love of God. And that's how he's sending us to. This summer, he has sent us here to Drew to bear witness to that love in this place, in this time, among one another, and among our neighbors. And I invite you to ask God, how you would like to participate more deeply in his love this summer in this place, and how you want to bear that love out in this place. And I want to take just a moment to talk about someone who I think is really good at bearing witness to that love, because sometimes I think we need to look at a person instead of just imagine an abstraction. And that person is Beth DeRigi. She's going to hate that I am drawing attention to her, but it is her last Sunday with us, and so it is my prerogative. (laughs) 
Beth led our music here for our first three years. As a volunteer, while still working this very intense job chasing down bad guys and keeping us all safe. And we have so much to thank Beth for. So many things that make incarnation, incarnation. Our high participation way of doing worship, our diversity of musical styles, our deep love of minor key songs. <laughs> This testament that we can sing praises in a minor key, that's rich, guys, and that's Beth. But most of all, what I'm grateful for is that Beth has cultivated this communion of love among the musicians. And I think it really matters that the worship of this church has always been led by a community that loves each other, who love to play together, who love when they play to point away from themselves and toward the gifts of others, toward the gifts of this congregation. They invite us to sing and participate with them. And I really think you can sense that generative joy, that creativity, the harmony that flows out of a team of musicians who love each other. It's really this glimpse of participating in Trinitarian love. It says we're not here to watch a concert, to follow a charismatic leader. We're here as a community of sons and daughters to worship the Trinity together. And that's really the whole point of the doctrine of the Trinity is worship. The Trinity has always been this attempt to more deeply understand and name and praise and enter into the God who has revealed himself to us. That's our true north, and the more we set our compass there and walk in it, the more our lives move to praise. So I think it's really fitting that our psalm for Trinity Sunday is the last psalm of the book of Psalms, Psalm 150. And it's this exuberant psalm of praise with every breath, every instrument that can be named. This is before the trombolele had been invented, which is a combination trombone and ukulele that we've pioneered right here, guys. But every instrument, even dancing, everything is captured up into these hallelujahs and these praises for God. But the Psalms are a book of prayers, and these prayers are arranged in order, and the order is not random. They didn't just collect them. They are arranged liturgically, sequentially, intentionally, and they have their own logic. And the final psalm is there as the capstone of these prayers. It's the culmination of the entire book, this song of praise. And that tells us that praise is where all of our prayers, all of our Trinitarian movements and wonderings and tryings no matter how anguished our cries and our grappling, that is where it's taking us to praise. Eugene Peterson says, all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Praise is the destination of our prayers, of our theology. It's the destination of our lives. And so let's join our voices in praise. Let's praise our Trinitarian Father. We praise as a communion of love. 
a love that flows out to the Father and out to others. Amen.